0: Wolawani, welcome. My name's Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people in Canberra. Welcome to Thursdays at Three, our regular series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. A great person for you to meet again today, Julianne Samara, a specialist palliative care nurse practitioner. Julianne works for the Canberra Health Service as part of the Peace Team, aka the Community Specialist Palliative Aged Care Service, run out of Clare Holland House. In 2019, Julianne won the National Palliative Care Emerging Leader Award. Also in 2019, she picked up the ACT Nursing and Midwifery Excellence in Clinical Practice Award. She's written for The Guardian Australia, and on Twitter, you'll know her as the Unraveled nurse. And earlier this year, you might recognise her face. She was one of the faces of our National Palliative Care Week campaign. Most importantly, in her 20-year career, Julianne reckons she's looked after thousands of dying people in aged care. I'm so looking forward to our conversation this afternoon, Julianne. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me here.
0: Tell me, Julianne, what do you think? What do you feel when you hear that? Looked after thousands of dying people in aged care. What do you feel when you hear that about your career?
1: Tired. Um, you know, I'm kind of proud of that. Age care is, is not a place where a lot of people choose to work and um, it's actually a great place to work. So if if I've helped to increase access to spe- specialist palliative care and help people to die well um, in aged care facilities, then I'm going to say I'm proud of it.
0: Yeah, rightly so. That's good to hear. Mm. Why don't people want to work in aged care Julianne, or why do, you, why do you choose to work in hate in there? What do you get out of
1: this? I'll, I'll start with why I choose it, I guess. I yeah. really love older people. I
0: mm-hmm.
1: grew up in a big family. Um, my grandmother on my mother's side was one of 13, um, and she looked after her brothers and sisters as they got older and and after her own mother. So I grew up going to stay with my Nan, uh, with her mother who'd had a stroke in the spare bedroom in a princess chair. Um, and I helped care for great uncles who'd had strokes and visited them in residential aged care. So I guess I always had that affinity for spending time with older people and really loved it. Um, what do I get out of it? Um, We are so privileged to have an older generation of people who have experienced amazing things in their life uh, in a world that has changed so dramatically in the last 100 years and to go and sit with people and hear their stories and meet their families and spend time unpacking what they've learned throughout their lives, and then being able to take away some little snippets of that and thinking that that's great advice, or things not to do, um, (laughs) is actually really rewarding. Yeah, so that's why I choose to do it.
0: Getting people to work in aged care is is a real challenge. Uh, Hopefully, it's less of a challenge in in the future as the government's reforms roll out. Do you understand those challenges? Do you understand why people are are reluctant to, to go there?
1: I do. I think um, it's a challenging environment, you know, to walk into a facility that might have 100 plus older people with such a huge variety of complex needs. So people are, you know, living longer, they're older and sicker than they've ever been before. I think residential aged care facilities are Subacute hospitals in all but name in spite of the glossy yeah. brochures that says yeah. they're a home-like environment it must be incredibly difficult for people to have come from living independently in their own homes to suddenly being in this big group situation that can be challenging, that can present as behavioural symptoms um, where staff are running after their tails trying to meet the needs of people and, and manage, manage things that are cropping up it can be frustrating to walk into an aged care facility and not find the right person to speak to, not be able to get a good clinical handover. Uh, the workload is high, resources are low, people are tired.
0: Mm-hmm. Are things changing? You wrote a great article for The Guardian Australia just before the last election. Of course, the government changed in May of 2022, but the article that you wrote for The Guardian was published in April of 2022 and it really put a rocket up where things were were at. You were really banging the table for, for reforms in aged care. Have things starting to change? You're seeing a, a, a difference now, sort of 12 months or more down the track?
1: Oh, look, I think so. I'm seeing some positive changes. I think it's really difficult for a government to come in after, you know, many years of neglect and to make significant changes that have an impact in a short period of time. So, I think it's too soon to say. Um, I think there have been some reforms coming out of the Royal Commission that have increased workload for registered nurses in aged care and taken them off the floor to do more paperwork, which is a really unfortunate um, result. But you know, having nurses in aged care, twenty four seven around the clock care, is absolutely the thing that I was banging on about yeah. um, in sheer frustration, and and so that that's been implemented from July, and in most facilities that's happening. Um, there are a few that you know have some challenging difficulties recruiting, but I think that will happen. I think the changes to the funding model with the ANAC funding model um, are starting to see some benefits from a palliative care perspective with people coming into aged care with the appropriate, so never enough, but an appropriate assessment and and appropriate funding to match that assessment. Um, I'm on the aged care task force looking at the funding and sustainability of aged care into the future and we met for the first time last month and I came away from that feeling hopeful that we will have some changes, um, systemic changes that will improve things in the future.
0: Oh, look, you know, you've just given me goosebumps thinking that people like you are on the Aged Care Task Force. That that gives me hope and I think gives our community hope that people like you are influencing that change. Of course, RNs 24-7 was one of the recommendations that came out of the Aged Care Royal Commission. And there are about a dozen recommendations that talked about palliative care and aged care needing to be better connected, more in, uh, that palliative care needed to be an embedded practice within aged care. And I think, for most people, they were really surprised to hear that it wasn't already. What does palliative care look like in, in aged care?
1: I think palliative care is core business in aged care. You know, um, we talk about people needing palliative care when they've got a life-limiting illness. What could be more life-limiting than the clock ticking down to the end of your life with the, the expected process. lifespan? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, so... I think um, I, I think everybody who works in aged care needs to have a good understanding of palliative care. They need to understand that people are going to die. I meet carers and registered nurses who come in fresh and new into aged care and are absolutely shell shocked the first time someone deteriorates and we say this person is dying. Uh, so we really need to improve. I think our undergraduate programs and our um, our mandatory training for care staff so that they realise that this is the environment they're walking into mm-hmm. and that they are going to have to face this. And for many, that's not just a confronting thing personally because they're young and they don't see dying in the community, um, but often it's a cultural thing because they're coming from other countries where we where they don't talk about death and dying um out loud, uh, where they don't have palliative care services, where it's not a named part of somebody's clinical care. So um, I think we've still got a lot of barriers to overcome with the workforce that is currently in aged care in the future and into the future.
0: Julianne, when we talk about you being with thousands of dying people in, in aged care during the course of your career, all those people have got families and and loved ones as well. That's perhaps a an extra dimension to to palliative care. You're looking after the patient, the person, but equally you're looking after the ripples that come from that that person, the the loved ones as as well. How do you go about? I guess juggling that care, which me sitting here, it feels like there's perhaps two different approaches. You've got an approach to the patient, an approach to the to the family and love loved ones. Tell us about that that role
1: you play. Um, That's probably one of the most challenging and interesting aspects of the job because not all families are the nice, neat little package that you see on TV. Um, And, you know, there's often a lot of conflict. There are a lot of dysfunctional families. And unpacking that and understanding how people fit with the person you're looking after and the impact that those relationships can have on the way someone's going to die is really important. It's kind of difficult. Our uh, our aged care, palliative care service um, is not funded for allied health and the psychosocial supports that our inpatient unit is. So I am really Blessed to work with some fantastic pastoral carers and social workers who when I go to them, they know it's because things are really desperate and I really need their help. And they're very happy to give advice and they will go and see somebody if, if, if I need them to. Uh, it would be great if the funding for specialist palliative care services in the community matched the model for inpatient units so that we had that broader team that could look after all of those psychosocial needs that come with complexity in families. It's great to build relationships with families, though, and to get to know them. Often the first thing when I walk into someone's room is, you know, to sit beside the bed and look at the photos around the room and ask them to tell me about their family. And then if family are there and they contribute to that conversation, it's it's a really nice way to build a relationship. And I still have families that four, or five, six years down the track, send me a text message or an email on the anniversary of, of their loved one's death and just say, just remembering and thanking you for the work that you did and keeping in touch, which is really lovely. Yeah, yeah. It can be very emotionally draining though, having all of those con- connections and sometimes competing priorities when the family's expectations and wishes don't match that of the person you're looking after.
0: What do you do with all that for yourself, for for your your partner, your 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 kids and your grandkids? What do you do with all that emotion that that just layer upon layer builds up over time? How do you deal with that?
1: Sometimes in better ways than others. Um, yes, yes. I you know it's really hard to go home at the end of a day where you've dealt with all of that and just, fall into your own family life. So, often I have a period of downtime where I need to be quiet and need to reflect and the fact that I've got a 20-minute drive home is usually enough unless it's been a really bad day. Um, I like to get away to the coast as often as I can on weekends, because that just grounds me and refreshes me. And as I go over the mountain to the south coast, all of that stress kind of drops away. And when I get there, I'm a little bit disconnected from life in Canberra, which is kind of nice. Uh, But I write, I write. And um, sometimes it's angry writing, sometimes it's sad writing, sometimes it's just reflective writing. But for me, that is probably my most effective decompression strategy Mm
0: -hmm. let's talk a bit more about that that writing what do you what do you do with it It, i imagine sometimes it's just for you but other times clearly you've written for the guardian australian uh you you publish to, to twitter other times when you write it's for other other people as well tell us about that
1: it can be tricky to divide that up. Um, the writing for me often is is written for those audiences but never gets published. So, you know, I might have had a very tricky week um, or have a couple of scenarios in my mind that are just on repeat and I can't let it go. And for me, being able to write it down and put it into some sense of order and reflect on it as I'm writing um, sometimes that's enough, and I never actually click that publish button. Yep. Other yep. times it's a process of writing, reading, editing, writing, reading, editing, over and over and over, and that it can be months. And then sometimes I do the angry Twitter thing where I just get it out yeah. <laughs> and hit send and think, oh, maybe, maybe I actually <laughs> shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, and during the election campaign, that was probably the most writing I did was the angry tweeting um, <laughs> writing, <laughs> which I, you know, I I regretted sometimes. And other times, it was powerful. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> is that a reason why you you write to to advocate for your patients, to advocate for your your colleagues? There is that sort of self care that seems to be a part of it. But is but is advocacy part of this as well?
1: I think it is now. I'm not sure I ever really intended that. Um, I think when I started writing, it was for me um, and just because I like to write. And then when I realised that people were reading what I wrote, I actually thought, <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe this is a, a tool that I can use. Maybe this is actually powerful. And so. Uh, sometimes when I'm writing, I'm really conscious of I want to get a message across and that message might be about my colleagues, it might be raising awareness about public care, it might be raising issues that are political. Um, and, and when I write that and I hit that publish button, um, sometimes I hope it will take off and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't and there it doesn't seem to be a, a rhyme or a reason to what, grabs people's attention. But I think I think it's a tool that I try to use wherever I can just to raise awareness about the work I do and the people I meet and the role of palliative care and the role of nurses.
0: In thinking about what works and, and what doesn't work and, and the history you've had on social media and, and with the media, have you been able to work out what are some of the secret ingredients to to making a story work or to to getting a a response or a reaction?
1: Not really. (laughs) Um, If I'm really honest, I think I I don't really want to analyse it too much because if I try and analyse it, I'm worried I'll start writing to a formula. Yes. And what I've learned is the formula doesn't always work anyway.
0: It's your authenticity that that you, that you would lose if you start thinking about it too much.
1: I think so and I think I think actually the the things that I've written that have been most successful have been the things that have come from the heart that have told a story that resonates with people because they can identify with it and um they're the ones that I probably didn't sit there and think who's going to read this what am I trying to say it was just get it out and and um and hope for the best so I don't think I've worked it out there's a lot of learning to do.
0: What yeah. about things like um, confidentiality, um, social media policies with the company you're working for? How do you go navigating that stuff?
1: Uh, that's probably the trickiest part of it all. Um, and. Probably the things that I never hit the publish button on are the ones where I think, oh, maybe there's something in here that would identify Mm -hmm. someone. So, you know, there are the social media policies for my company. There's confidentiality agreements with the facilities I work with. Um, There's that respect for privacy and dignity that I have for my patients and their families. There's my responsibilities under the APRA code of conduct and my... Um, standards for practice, and um, if you put all of that together like that, you kind of think, well, maybe I shouldn't write at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but when you work it through, and I guess what I what I try and do is, if I'm writing patient stories, it's not necessarily one patient. So there might be bits and pieces from three or four different patients who've had some similar theme. Uh, and I pull those together to be a patient or a, mm-hmm. a resident. And that's how I get around privacy and confidentiality a lot of the time is it's yep. it's an amalgamation of everything I do, not any one specific case. Even mm-hmm. though sometimes it might sound like that when you read it. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's really tricky. It's the thing that I have lost sleep over occasionally when i've hit the publish button before thinking about it there have been things that i have deleted after because i've thought oh maybe that was something that could identify you know canberra in particular is a really small place yeah um everyone knows everyone i am fifth generation born and bred my grandchildren are you know, seventh generation, born and bred. So we know everyone in Canberra. Yeah. There's there's some family link everywhere, and and I need to be really careful about that.
0: How do you cope with the attention that comes from from some of this stuff? As you say, you know, some of it takes off and goes goes big. How do you cope with that that attention?
1: I hide under a rock. <laughs> um, I, I'm not. I'm not good at that bit. Um, I think, you know, particularly when it's negative attention, the Mm -hmm. best way to manage that often is to ignore it. So, if you know, we know that social media can be a pretty nasty place sometimes. And so, you know, I'm probably not the only one that's had some nasty comments or some things directed at me personally. Um, And if I read those and thought about them and dwelt on them, that would stop me writing. So sometimes just stopping reading comments is a good strategy. Mm -hmm. The positive stuff surprises me. You know, when the Guardian approached me to write for them and sent me a contract and said they were happy to pay me to write for them, I went... But this is me. I'm, I need. I didn't actually finish college. I didn't go to college, you know. <laughs> um, I came to nursing really late in life. I really struggled to do a degree and then a master's. And so, I, I keep. It's that imposter syndrome. That yeah. is this really me? Like, what is it here? Um, so I'm not great, and I'm a real introvert. Actually, I don't like attention. I can stand up and present. I can stand up and talk publicly. Um, I've taught myself to do that mm-hmm. but it's not my comfort zone by any means and so I'm the quiet one usually in the corner at parties not <laughs> not not the one that's out there laughing and introducing myself to strangers.
0: We'll post links in the show notes to the the article that we've been talking about with with The Guardian and, in, and indeed we'll link through to your your Twitter account as as well. Julianne we're keen for people at the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference coming up in Sydney this September um, to use social media to sort of amplify the learnings, amplify the experience and, and, and do some of that advocacy work that, that you pointed to before. Any tips or tricks for, for people coming to OPCC and, and perhaps wanting to, to share the experience on their, on their own socials?
1: Sure. Acknowledging that I'm not an expert in this, (laughs) so anything I'm going to say comes from just what I do and how I approach it. Um, But I actually really love tweeting at conferences and uh, even posting on LinkedIn from conferences. I think it's a really great way of spreading the message and, and helping to educate other people. One of the things I like to do if I have time is to look at who's presenting or speaking, Particularly keynote speakers and follow them way ahead of the conference. So okay. I get a feel yep. for where they come from. Yep. And I look at their followers, particularly on Twitter. Are we allowed to call it Twitter now? I think it's yeah. X. <laughs> so maybe I'll be Xing all over the conference. Um, but I look at their followers because often that's a really great way to build your network and make connections and so I follow the followers of the people that I really like um, and that's really helpful because then you get I think then you get some power in tweeting and retweeting. Um, Using hashtags is something that I always used to forget to do but actually that's really powerful as well um, because that creates a network of people what else do I do? I reply. I don't like to just tweet a slide, you know, from a conference. I like to actually provide a little bit of insight or what was I thinking or what was the main message here in an attempt to start some sort of conversation. And so then when people respond um making that a a conversation and replying to replies is actually really helpful and sometimes is the the reply is it'd be great to meet up at morning tea and talk about this I'll be at the whatever stand so they're my tips for new players that may or may not work
0: Solid gold. Really looking forward to spending some time with you at OPCC this September in Sydney. You'll, you'll be there. Registrations are open right now. And if I could just give everyone a bit of a tip, prices are going to go up on the 18th of August. So if you haven't registered yet, get in now before the price rise. Julianne, just before you go, you mentioned that feeling of going over the mountain, getting down the coast. I think that's, a, that's something that a lot of people in Canberra and indeed communities right around Australia can relate to. Where's your favourite place on the coast? Not to give away a secret beach or, or spoil a special spot for you. Where do you like to go when you go down the coast?
1: We're so lucky. Um, at the start of the pandemic, we actually bought a house in Churros because my parents are on the south coast and and. They're fit and healthy at the moment, but I knew that in the future maybe I'd be needing to spend more time down there, so I wanted to have my own base. So I have a really beautiful house that looks out to the ocean with a gorgeous cottage garden and it's just like this little island in the middle of my busy life and that's my favourite place to go.
0: Chiros is such a magic place. Uh, My heart Mm -hmm. sings, Julianne, because I think Canberra wastes their time at Batemans Bay. The best
1: part of the coast is Naruma South, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole coastline is beautiful, but uh, when we were looking, we looked from Batemans Bay to Naruma in terms of how many hours does it take to get there on a Friday night after a terrible week. And the busyness of Batemans Bay and all the way down to Maruya was just, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for an escape and some tranquility and, Churros is off the highway. It's perfect because it's got a couple of different features. It's got a little shopping centre. It's got a really great community. They're all old. So I'm going down there to start a private practice when I retire <laughs> because Churros is called God's waiting room to anyone <laughs> who knows the South Coast. So uh, I reckon it's perfect for a retired palliative aged care nurse practitioner. <laughs> Sounds it.
0: And look, just to retract my comments about Batemans Bay, uh, we'll we'll perhaps create some social media rage with with my comments about Batemans Bay. It's a great place. It's a great place. Gillian, thank you so much for your time today. We'll see you at OPCC. Thank you for sharing your work and your wisdom and what you do in the Canberra community and, and influencing change and reform wider afield. Thank you for being here today and for what you do.
1: Thanks so much, Ian.
0: And thank you to you for tuning in to Thursdays at three, whether that's via PCA socials or Spotify and engaging in matters of life and death. To register for the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference, head to the OPCC website. The full program is there so you can plan out your three days. And as I mentioned before, beat the August 18 price rise and register now. You'll find advice, tools and support with matters of life and death on the Palliative Care Australia website where you can also make a donation to support our work. Thanks for tuning in. See you next Thursday.